By the way, I sold copiers for five years out of college. Worst job ever. Jay in the Bay Area. I'll tell you this, Jay. You were very tough and very thick-skinned if you sold copiers for five years. That's a man's game right there. That's a hard, hard gig. That's an almost impossible product to sell successfully. How often do people need copiers? And if you're coming out of college, you're going to cold call, and they're going to put you in the worst territory imaginable. So that clip is from the Jim Rome Show, which is a popular sports radio show in the U.S. He got on a rant about sales calls, and I thought it'd be especially pertinent to this episode, as you'll hear. So I'm going to let the rest of this clip play out, and then we'll move on to the interview. But before I do, I want to give a holler to all our new VIP listeners, aka our Patreon supporters. So thanks to Jason Hurd, Erica Sinner, Aaron Richterink, Andy Barr, Jim Buggy, and David Dixon. You guys are the bomb, and we look forward to you joining us on our next monthly group call. It's only for our Patreon supporters, so if you're listening to this episode right now, which you obviously are, then I'm talking to you. We want you to be on our next group call. And to get on that call, you need to become a Patreon member. And you can do that by, well, you know what to do. When I sold dictation equipment, they dropped me off in the city of industry and commerce in Southern California. You know, tough neighborhoods, meat packing plants. I'd call on those guys, bang on doors, look around the corner for security guards that were looking to eject me from the building. Receptionists, who that was their only power in the world, crushing people like me. And for what? A $2,200 glorified answering machine. Hey, decision maker. If I had a way to save you time and money while at the same time cutting costs, wouldn't you be interested in learning more about that? No, but I would be interested in knocking your nose through the back of your head. How'd you get in here? Uh, anyway, if I had a way to save you 20%, yet give you an extra hour a day in leisure time, would you be interested in hearing more? I'm going to choke you out, fool, if you're not out of my office in five seconds. Okay, have a nice day, Mr. Prospect. Nice fish, by the way. Is that your family? Beautiful family. Just keep talking to them about the things they like. Everybody wants to talk about themselves. Keep asking them questions. Make it about them. Look around the office. If you see a fish on the wall, compliment them on their fish and ask them where they caught it. Imagine the sort of garbage that they pump you up with. When you're out of college, and this is how they teach you how to sell. Newsflash, people will buy things from people they like. Or they're going to buy things based only on price and need. So save your nonsense with your tricky little tie-me-downs. And, hey, Mr. Prospect, I'm going to be in your neighborhood on Tuesday the 13th and Thursday the 15th. Which day is better for you? Oh, wow. He turned me inside out. I've got no way out. I have to commit now, don't I? Gotcha. It's like a riddle. How do I get out of this one? I'm the CEO and the president of the company, but that first year sales rep just backed me into a corner. Well, I guess uh, Thursday the 15th would be great. Awesome. Does 5 o'clock work or would 3 o'clock be better for you? Um, 3? Great. See you then, Mr. Prospect. I said, you're a natural leader. You would be a great CEO. And Austin, my response flippantly was, it wasn't no, it was hell no. At least in the short term, I know one thing, I'll outwork them. So I jumped in, full commission. You said you were 31 years old, and it sounded like you were going to be the head of 500 people at that point. What was that like? I will tell you that my first step was... We went on a pace of growth that started literally right around mid-09 that we have never looked back from. And if you'll just give me a chance, fire me if I'm not doing everything I say, but I promise you I will bust my butt for you and do a phenomenal job. And eventually, if you meet with enough people, you're going to find executives that warm up to a young hustler. My name's Heath Rittenauer. I'm the chairman and CEO of IOA, or Insurance Office of America. 
started in the business in the mid 90s and have grown our agency substantially since then. What's IOA USA? We are a, one of the largest privately held insurance brokers in America. One of the, a dying breed, frankly, there's only three left in the top 100. Most are either public companies or backed by private equity. One of three, we serve all sorts of commercial and personal clients, home and auto, and then commercial being our largest portion of our business, which is general liability, work comp, property, auto, health insurance for corporations. I don't know if we get your agent location, if you don't mind telling us. Yeah, I live right outside of Orlando in a smaller suburb called Longwood, and I'm 42, going on 43 in a couple of weeks. Okay. Y'all are like a, a nationwide company? Because I think if most people saw your logo, if they looked up like IOA USA, I feel like a lot of people might recognize it. I don't know if that's true or if just because I'm in Jacksonville, I'm about two hours away from you if I just happen to see it more often than others. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Austin. We have over 55 locations all over the country from the Northeast, Southeast, Midwest, and West Coast. But really, our logo is not as well known as I'd like it to be, nor is our story. Where you might have seen it in Jacksonville is, you know, we insure the Jaguars. You'll see our logo quite a bit around Jacksonville with a lot that we do, not only at the stadium, but with the team. And also, we, and frankly, do a ton of insurance on professional sports teams, which that may be where our logo has been recognized, but our story, not as much. So I'm excited at the opportunity to tell a little bit of our story this morning. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, no, I'm a sports fanatic. So maybe it's just implemented from the Jaguars and then seeing these other actually good franchises. So you said got 55 locations. Can you give us an idea of what employee count and revenues were for this past year? Yeah, we're going to finish this year right around 223, 224 million is what we're budgeting for. And we're right on pace through November. We're just under 1,400, I think 1,390 and some change. Did you ever think you'd run a company this big? Absolutely not. Didn't expect to ever be in the insurance business or be anything outside of maybe a local success, much less, you know, one that has grown to the levels that we have. You said you're basically an insurance business. I mean, I don't know if we should jump into the details later or if there's any use cases where someone would be able to use y'all, who your normal client is and how y'all actually make money. Yeah, our normal customer is 80% or so of our business is middle market commercial client. And the beauty about what we do, Austin, is it's blue collar, white collar, you name it. Um, which is one of the reasons I actually got interested in the business early on. Um, it was very different than what I thought. Every single commercial business needs general liability, workers' comp, property insurance, auto insurance, health insurance. And we stand there to, be, to meet their needs in that area. And we're independent. So what that means is we're not tied to one insurance company. So we represent all of the biggest in the world from Travelers, Hartford, CNA, AIG, Zurich, you know, all the big names that you've heard of, Hartford, and many, many others to meet a specific need for our clients. And it may be with three or four different insurance companies. So being independent allows us to not be married to just one insurance company, but to be able to bring the best resources and the best insurance companies to the table for our client, depending on what industry they're in. Because each insurance company specializes in different businesses. What's your day-to-day -day like as a CEO for a company this large? Yeah, I mean, my day to day in some cases, and I'm trying to move away from being firefighting mode, but when you grow at the rapid pace that we have um, over the last 30 years, especially the last 10, we're really trying to move towards fire prevention rather than firefighting, but it can be difficult when you're growing at the pace that we are. But my average day consists of meetings and a list of to-dos that as I scratch two or three off of the list, there's another two or three added, and I never know where it comes from. I will say outside of the insurance business that we own, IOA Group, our holding company, owns a promotional items business that's about a $25 million company called Matchup Promotions. We own a payroll business, Payroll Office of America, to do payroll for our clients. We own a technology business, and we also own a number of buildings, a number of real estate, some that we occupy and lease back to IOA. And then obviously we have other branches that we lease. So my day could be everything from an issue with employees, an issue with systems, an issue with one of our sub companies and all in between. So my day is rather, it's fluid. It changes quite often and I'm always quite busy. Quite a diversified business, I would say, based on everything you just said there too. I mean, it's already diversified enough just thinking about insurance to me, but then you're saying all these other things that you also own underneath the IOA umbrella. I'll give you probably the best story to that is probably matchup promotions being one of the best stories to kind of give you a visual of how we've gotten involved in other businesses. We had a gentleman that we used to buy branded merchandise from about 15 years ago. And every year we'd buy IOA logo, golf balls, shirts, pens, pencils, things of that nature for our clients, just as handouts or to go to trade shows with. 
And this gentleman, after working with him for a number of years, he mentioned to us that, hey, you know, considering selling my business, my wife and I feel called to go into the missions field overseas. So we frankly just said to him, you know, hey, Tim, just curious, what is it you're looking for? He said, well, I've got an LOI with somebody I'm interested in selling my business to, and then I want to move. And we just thought at the time, and we are a much smaller agency, but we thought with the number of our insurance agents at the time, we thought most of our insurance agent clients bought promotional items. And so we thought we could scale that business by opening doors for matchup to our commercial clients and the commercial insurance companies and some of the sports teams we insured. So we put an offer on that and then agreed to give him a piece of the upside while he was in the mission field. And when we bought the business, give or take 15 or so years ago, was doing about 300,000 a year in revenue. And last year we did, I think, 26 million, somewhere right around that. So we have scaled it substantially. And then that kind of piggybacked into some other opportunities that we've taken. The tech business we bought into was a similar situation. We felt like it had good products, good services, good leadership, but really didn't have access to capital or the ability to scale the business. And we felt like we could take that to another level. We've done that in other areas. So it doesn't necessarily have to complement insurance. If we find a business that we believe in and people we can build around, we look to diversify ourselves in other business areas and interest outside of insurance if we believe there's a long-term play there. Well, that's interesting, yeah, that you're open-minded enough to try to figure these things out. Some people like to guess just to stick in their lane, but you said you're always open to opportunities to expand your entire business, it sounds like. Absolutely. I appreciate the overview. I think we got a good idea of where we are now. So do you want to reel it back to how we got started with the IOA and maybe even before that? Yeah, man, I'll give you a quick story on myself and then how I kind of fell backwards, which I think most people in insurance, frankly, fall backwards into it because Frankly, if you probably grew up wanting to be in the insurance business, you're probably a little strange, but that doesn't offend anybody. But my family grew up in the business. My dad started out on the blast furnace at the steel mill in Pittsburgh when he got frustrated by not being promoted for hard work and it was all about time served. He was looking for any other opportunity he could find and he fell backwards into the insurance business in the 70s in Pittsburgh when the steel mills closed down and everything in the economy in Pittsburgh went haywire in the 80s. We were looking for greener pastures. And we found Florida. And Orlando was a newer city. It was up and coming. And my father started a little insurance agency here in Orlando. It was actually in Apopka, another suburb of Orlando, and built it up to a small little mom and pop agency. What year, if you don't mind? I like to just establish some years so we can get a good idea of like how old you were when you came down as well. I was born in 76. We moved here in 85. And we actually started, it wasn't IOA at the time, it was IOF, Insurance Office of Florida, because obviously we were just a local company and then we changed the name when we expanded outside of the state. Um, and so really they just small, you know, built what, what was a nice little mom and pop agency in Orlando. I had grown up really passionate about sports, football, baseball, and basketball. My main love though was football. So I ended up going to college to play football on a scholarship at a 1AA school called Liberty University. So I did that when I was home for the summer in 1996. I remember telling my parents, I really don't know what it is I want to do in life. I know what I don't want to do, and that's be in the insurance business. But I said, you know, while I'm in town, we had eight agents. We were a small firm at the time. And I said, hey, maybe I could spend time with our eight partners and I can go out with them on their renewal meetings or new business meetings because I know they're meeting with all types of industries. And I thought, you know, I'd go along in those meetings, be the third wheel, sit there and listen and learn about different industries. And then maybe I'll find an industry I'm passionate about and I'll either go back to school for that or I'll try to get a job right away. And it was a blessing, man, because the eight partners were just really, really good to me. They kind of put their arm around me, took me with them on all their meetings. And what I quickly learned was, you know, insurance was not what I thought. I had the misperception of to use car salesman mentality. It's a policy peddler mentality. It's not a real relationship business. It's not consultative. It's you're selling a commodity is what I thought. And to be honest with you, this may not sound right, but it's the truth. When I joined that, or when I got involved that summer, we had eight agents, as I said, and four of those guys were truly policy peddlers. They were kind of everything I said. They didn't bring a lot of value. They sold on price. They didn't become advocates for their customers. They were just out to sell a product and then go away, come back in 12 months and renew it. But yet, on the other hand, I saw four other gentlemen that were the antithesis of that. I watched them deal with their clients and I watched them interact and I saw clearly that they were looked at just like trusted advisors, like attorneys and CPAs, because they were truly making their clients, they were there to mitigate risk. They were there to be a trusted advisor. They were there to make that customer better. 
the four gentlemen that were just the policy peddlers and then the other four were the professionals. And what I really saw at the time was, this may again not sound good, but it's the true story. I knew it'd take me a lot of years and a lot of experience to look like the four professionals that we had that were just consultants and professional and first class at what they do. But I saw the other four that I didn't think added a lot of value, that I didn't think brought a ton of value outside of a good policy with terms and conditions. I didn't think they did a lot for their customers outside of that. And I felt like, you know, it's going to take me a while to look like these pros. But if these four other gentlemen are having the success they're having, I know I'm young, I got zits on my face and I'm starting from scratch and I got to make 100 cold calls a day and probably get hung up on 99 times. But if these four, who I don't think do that great of a job, can have the success they're having, I know at some point through just flat out hard work, I'll get there. Because the truth is, I mean, that's how I earned a scholarship in football. It's not because I'm this naturally gifted, six foot four, super fast, super big athlete. I really outworked everyone on the team. And so at that point, I just kind of looked in the mirror and thought, you know what, they've done a good job building a nice business for themselves in spite of the fact that I don't see them bringing a ton of value. So at least in the short term, I know one thing, I'll outwork them. So I jumped in full commission. And I started, like I said, making that 100 cold calls a day, you know, getting hung up on 90 plus times and just really trying to get in front of people and see if I could help them. Really, that first year was extremely difficult. I had a lot of rejection. I had a lot of just running into walls, getting hung up on. People don't want to deal with a new insurance guy. They don't think you can help them. I was half the age of most of my prospects. And so it was very difficult. But also, I wouldn't trade those years for anything. And it turned into a lot of success in sales before I transitioned into leadership. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use, all of it is there. If you wanna check out that episode, Hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. I appreciate you giving us a preview of at least of that first year because I definitely want to go back to that because I think as many times as possible, if you're not going to start your own business, at least getting in on the sales side, especially if you're doing full commission is basically running your own business. So it's a good learning experience that kind of has a little bit of structure. But before we even jump into graduating college and doing your first year in the insurance company, can you go back to when your dad actually moved down here and how he started the company and just tell us what that was like? Because that had to be a big life change as well. I'm just curious what you saw from afar and him growing his business. Yeah, I'll tell you what he did is he started by working for one of our local competitors who's still a friendly competitor in town now. And my father, being the hardest working guy I've ever met in the first year, was their top producer. And three times in that first year, he got his deal changed. And he was really frustrated. What he felt like was a greedy culture. And he really had a desire to start his own business. Now, I have a huge affinity, Austin, for community banks, because frankly, a community banker bet on my parents. Gave him a $10,000 loan to start IOF, Insurance Office of Florida at the time, when frankly, they didn't have a lot of collateral for that loan. It was a, hey, he bet on them and gave him a shot. And that $10,000 is what got us started and was the foundation for what's become a $200 plus million business. So when he was starting his own IOF, how long had he been in the insurance business? Because it sounds like you were saying he felt like he was getting a raw deal for whatever company he had moved down here and started working with. I'll tell you real quick, when he left the steel mill in Pittsburgh, the only job he could find that was commission-based was selling debit life insurance policies door-to-door in the projects in McKeesport, where he grew up, which is right outside of Pittsburgh. It was the steel capital of the world. So essentially what those policies were back in the day is you would sell a five dollars or $10,000 burial policy, but yet you would drive to each home that you sold a policy to every single week to collect the premium. So that's what my dad did. He did it with two Dobermans in the car to make sure he didn't get robbed because it wasn't in the best part of town. So that was his humble beginnings in the insurance business. And then when we decided to leave Pittsburgh because the economy had just completely went into the tubes after all the steel mills closed, and we felt like Orlando was a better up and coming place, he then transitioned from the life insurance space to commercial, which again is a majority of what we do today. That's when he joined a competitor. And then after a year of being frustrated with the model, decided to bet on himself and start Insurance Office of Florida at the time. That seems pretty interesting because at least he got a jump start in Pittsburgh too. And then he was down here for a year. After you've been in it for a year, he felt like he had enough understanding of the insurance industry and everything and perspective that he could go ahead and start his own. Was he scared at all before he even started? I mean, I don't know if you've talked to him about all that. I'm a little curious about that. 
of course, he was scared and didn't know a ton at the time, but I think he probably felt in a similar way the way I did when I started is, if all else fails, I'll just outwork the next guy or the next lady and make my mark that way. And he did that and had a tremendous amount of success in sales as he was an agent while he was also the founder and the CEO at the time. And that's kind of how I got my start. I learned from him that you got to put your customer first, you got to build a business. And then also when you then transition from sales to leadership, you don't lose relevance, right? You know what your people do every day. You're not the ivory tower guy that sits in the corner office that you had to kill your own food too. You know what it's like, you know how difficult it is. And I think that's a big part of our culture. Even today, I still have a large book of business. Now, majority of my time has very little to do with my book of business. It's spent running IOA, but I still keep a pulse on what our agents do every day because I have some long-term clients that I'm very loyal to that bet on me when I was young that have been with me for over 20 years that I absolutely am loyal to that even though my day is filled up with everything but dealing with their day-to-day, I still am involved in their account occasionally. I still have those relationships because to me, loyalty is everything and they help me get their start. On the other side of not losing sight of being a producer, it helps me with being relevant to our partners. Sometimes in our business that you'll see executives that are either PE backed or come from the banking business or somewhere else that live in our space, they'll look at some of our successful salespeople, they'll not appreciate how hard it is to go out and and frankly kill your own food. And so they'll start to look at these sales folks earning well into the six figures and above, and they'll feel like, well, they're making too much and they'll cap them or they'll move the goalpost and make it more difficult for them to earn the commissions they're earning. And that's just never been our model. We've always felt like, hey, why put a cap on anybody? If you're motivated and you want to build something, sky's the limit for you. I hope you out earn myself as a CEO. And frankly, every single year we have producers that do that, which I'm proud of. That's not an ego hit to me at all. I just think it's freedom and it's an opportunity to be as successful as you can be here with the amount of effort and time you put into it to serve your customers. So our model is very different. Well, I don't know any other national insurance broker that can say they have producers that take home, out earn them on an annual basis. And that is true here. Why don't we jump back to your story, I guess, even that first year, if you don't mind. You're saying year one, that it was difficult. Like, how much money did you end up making? And this was like 96 or so, if we're jumping back into the story? Yeah, it was 96, making probably 100 calls a day, give or take, getting hung up on nonstop. I want to say that year, I might have made 25000 I was really struggling. I was living in an apartment with three guys. We could barely afford our rent. We were eating ramen noodles, struggling, trying to make whatever we could. One guy was in a restaurant, another guy was in construction, and so we were all grinding. But those were good memories as, as I look back on it, and I know some of the hard licks I took back then molded me into better success later, and I, I would never trade those times. But very difficult to start when you're a young person in your 20s in the insurance business trying to work with business owners because most business owners few of them are below 30. Most are above 40. And so when you're in your early 20s, you're going to have a more difficult time impressing a business owner that you're going to be able to help them. Had a lot of struggle that first year, but I continued to hustle and work hard. And I finally started to hit my stride right in the beginning of the second year. And I stopped being so canned in my approach. I stopped trying to fake it and act like I knew more than I did. And I frankly just sat down with people and said, hey, I know I'm young. I know there's probably folks you deal with that have more experience and been doing this longer than me, but if you'll give me a shot, I promise you there's no one that'll work harder for you than me. There's no one that will care about you more than I will. There's no one that'll be all in if you'll just give me a shot. And I frankly had a construction guy who owned a construction business back then that bet on me and gave me a shot. And another gentleman that owned a manufacturing company that did the same thing and opened the door to his business and then started to refer me his friends when I did everything I said I would do. And that started to give me a foundation to start to understand the beauty of referrals. And you know, I started to then transition from dialing for dollars all day and trying to walk in and do business that way into going to the customers I have, asking them, is there anything I could do for them that I'm not doing? Asking them, do they see value in it? And then when they tell me they appreciate it, I ask them, well, who do you know that I could help? It's one thing to ask, hey, do you have anyone you can refer me or can you refer me someone, you know, keep me in mind? They'll all say, sure, yeah, okay. But it's a different question to say, who do you know that I can help? And so I started asking that and then I would get a name. And as soon as I would get that name, I would call that person and say, so-and-so told me that thinks that I can help you. Here's what I do for them. Can I have an opportunity to sit down and show you where I can bring value in your insurance program? I started then in year two to start to pick up the pace and build a substantial book of business. And then I want to say that was 96. So about 2008 is when I transitioned into leadership after 12 years. 
mean, I had built my book of business up to just right around a million dollars in annual revenue. Yeah. So before you jumped to 2008, when you took on the leadership stuff, it sounded like what you said was a good quote that someone can use if they're young and into sales about like, hey, realizing the elephant in the room, yeah, you are younger. Yeah, most of the guys that you're talking to are probably in their 40s or even 50s. So don't play against that. Let's just call it out. I'm younger, but I'm going to work harder for you. Is there any other things that worked out for you? Like you're saying, kind of starting year two that you could advise anyone else getting into sales. It sounds like a lot of these were calls, but I don't know if some of the in-person ones, that makes a lot more sense because they can actually see how young you are. I guess if you actually go see them, but any other suggestions or tips for anyone in sales and in that younger position? Yeah, what I'll tell you, it works best is, and my love language is authenticity. So I wanted to grow a mustache to look older and I look like a fool. <laughs> Just anything like that to try to not look like the kid coming out of college was my initial start. But I then realized, you know what, just what you said, Austin, that's the elephant in the room. They're going to realize I'm new at this. They're going to realize I'm a young guy. So why not call it out and say, hey, look, I know I'm young, but I will bust my butt for you. And no one will care more about you than I will. And no one will work harder for you than me. And if you'll just give me a chance, fire me if I'm not doing everything I say, but I promise you, I will bust my butt for you and do a phenomenal job. And eventually, if you meet with enough people, you're going to find executives that warm up to a young hustler. I know I run into them today and I see someone who would come at me with that similar, that way about them or communication style that's authentic and saying, look, I'm truly here to help. I want to help a young guy or young lady like that. You know, that's attractive to me as an executive. So I would encourage any young person to not hide from it, call it out, tell it what it is, but also tell them why you're not like every other young person that you're going to stand head and shoulders above and you're going to work harder and you're going to live and die by your word and you're going to serve them with excellence. And I'll tell you, when I started to just do that, I started to take that elephant off the table and bring it up myself. And I started to then build authentic relationships. And I started to build relationships with people twice my age that really looked at me um, as somebody they wanted to be a part of mentoring. So some of my first clients became mentors that we clicked. They believed in me. I did a good job for them. And then I started to ask them for a monthly lunch. And then I would pick their brain on how'd you build your business. And you know, every successful CEO, CFO, or executive loves to tell their story about how they became successful. So that was something not only did I want to learn from and grow from, but it also helped me solidify relationships. And then I ended up building up a lineup of really strong mentors when I was in my mid twenties and late twenties that some of which are still very close to me today. I wouldn't trade those early days with those folks for the world because some of them I still lean on quite often when I'm dealing with an issue in business or even in life, just say, Hey, help me out. I know you've been through so many things over your career. Most of those folks that bet on me earlier are retired at this point, but that's some stuff I could say is invaluable for young salespeople. Don't hide from who you are, address it, but tell the client why that isn't going to create a problem for you being super successful on their behalf. I think it's pretty obvious just as listening to you even now, but I'm sure even back then, like how much energy and drive you must have had. But I always find one thing that's really helpful too is having a solid system or lead list or whatever that you're going to go off of in order to even get those initial clients. So did you have any strategy behind that versus, I don't know, just calling down the phone book back then of trying to figure out who would be a good client? Yeah, I will tell you today, it's a lot easier to find targeted opportunities where I was a shotgun guy rather than a sniper guy. And I think, you know, had I started today, I think my ramp up time would have been quicker. I spent a lot of time in meetings with suspects, not prospects. I spent a lot of time with people that had access to data that I would have today. I wouldn't have wasted my time to go meet with because I would have known ahead of time that it wasn't worth my time. It wasn't a real opportunity. So I would say back then, no, I mean, I spent a ton of time that today you can mitigate with technology and truly have a sniper approach to your prospects by business industry, by size of company, by employee count, by effective date. I mean, they're premium size. You can get access to a lot of that information now digitally, which just back in the day, yeah, we were, it was the phone book. Yeah, no, I can imagine because it's funny, like when I got into commercial real estate brokerage and like probably had the exact same mindset you did where I was dealing with guys who were like in their 40s or 50s and I'm the young dude. But when I came out, I was lucky to benefit from finding a good segmented lead list where I'm like, okay, I'm only going to deal with guys who have maturing loans, right? Because I have access to that technology because then I know they have to get a loan done versus some of my people who'd work in my brokerage or competitive brokers, they would just go talk to every real estate company. And I'm like, well, if you don't know that they have to get something done, then you're kind of wasting your time. Like you were saying, you didn't have access to that kind of data back in the day. But anyone who's listening is like, if you can find that targeted list, whatever industry you're in, I think that makes it so much faster and more efficient to even become a better and faster top producer for any type of industry, it sounds like. 
I don't know the rapid pace, but I can tell you that if I had access in the mid-90s to what our younger partners have today, I believe I would have ramped up substantially faster. So over those 12 years from, let's say, 96 to you're saying to 2008, was it just slow and steady growth because through the referrals and doing good jobs? And was there anything else that maybe we should hit on before we jump to when you got in this leadership position? Yeah. I mean, it was really being an advocate, growing my relationships, trying to get centers of influences, and then asking for referrals are really what got me from that first year, maybe making 20,000 commission to upwards of close to a million in 12 years really came mostly by referrals. I mean, at that point, after probably year three or four, I stopped dialing for dollars and I just started to try to network, work associations. I started to have some success in construction. So I started working with Anytime I'd write a GC and I'd do a good job, I'd beg him for opportunities on his subcontractors. I just found a niche in that area. And then again, one of the first gentlemen that bet on me was a manufacturer of sheds. And so I started, I wanted to be the guy that wrote every manufacturer of sheds that I could find. And so I just kind of took it from there and built it after a few years on, on pure referrals. So what was the hardest part during those 12 years of growing your own book of business? Rejection being the most difficult part. I had, you have to have a not look in the rearview mirror and have a windshield mentality is what I always say, because if you get hung up in the rearview mirror, it just doesn't do anything but make you miserable, bring you down. And then it also, it makes you press. If you're constantly feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm not getting enough deals, that comes across when you meet with a prospect, right? And so I just had to, and it was a little bit like what caused success in football. You make a mistake, you jump back out there, give me the ball, man, give me it again. I want to show that I could do it better. And I wasn't worried about the fumble. I wasn't worried about when I had a penalty. I was more about next, next, next. And when I finally transitioned to that mode of thinking and business, and I stopped worrying about all the negativity or the rejection, and I started focusing on the future and what's next, that percentage that became closes went substantially up. I just had changed my whole philosophy around the value that I bring and feeling positive about that. Hey, I'm really here to help you. I'm not trying to sell you anything. Maybe we're not a fit to work together. And you may have a relationship that's not breakable, but if you're not happy in the situation you're in, I know I can help you. And so my thinking when I went from, I got to go sell someone an insurance policy, that was a bad way to approach what I do. When I changed into, hey, I'm just here to bring value, help you mitigate risk and bring a better program to the table to save you bottom line dollars and also mitigate risk for your business. I truly felt like a business consultant. I truly felt like somebody that was bringing value. So I was no longer pushing to sell anything. I felt like I was just trying to get in front of people that needed help. And I felt confident that I could help them. Did you decide that you wanted to kind of get out of the sales role and get into a CEO role? Like how did this transition actually end up happening for you? So here we are in 2008 in January. My dad was our CEO and chairman and our president, Dave, had been with us for, I don't know, a decade plus, 15 years maybe. And he had come to my father and I to tell us that in June, he was going to retire and spend six months a year overseas. He was an empty nester. Kids were out of the house. And so he just basically told us, hey, I want to give you a six-month head start. You know, June, I want to retire. And we said, great. You know, Dave, you've been a blessing to us. We'll throw you a party and excited about your future. And so when we left that office, my dad grabbed me and he said, hey, let's have a talk. I said, yeah, what's up, Pop? And he said, hey, you know, son, we're a generational business. We're not for sale. We're not going public. He was, had been in the position for a number of years. And he said, you know, the company has grown substantially. We're at this point about a $70 million business with about 500 people. People need to know what the future looks like. You're respected here. You built your book organically. You're not a golden sperm, for lack of a better term. You didn't come in on some salary or anything like that. And he said, you're a natural leader. You would be a great CEO. Jeff Lagos, who's our president today still, he said he'd be a great president. And then my dad said he wanted to transition in the chairman's position. And Austin, my response flippantly was, it wasn't no, it was hell no. I said, I'm not an Ivy League guy. I'm a sales guy. I'm a sports guy. I'm not wired for this. It scares me. And oh, by the way, it's January of 2008. The economy's melting down. My book of business that had a lot of construction in it, most of my contractors didn't even have any work to do. Many of them, if they didn't go away, they had minimal employees. They trimmed everything down to just be able to survive the downturn. And so in the midst of him asking me to take on this responsibility, not only was I scared of it and felt inadequate, my book of business was melting down. The economy was a wreck and I was just flat out scared. So in that conversation, I said no. And he said, okay. And maybe two, three weeks went by and he grabbed me again and he said, hey, you know, I just want to bring it up again. Do you have any interest at all? I know you'd be great at this. Just basically tell me why all the reasons he felt like I'd be good at the job. And I had the same flippant response. And now truly I'll fast forward on the story to two or three weeks before Dave's retirement party. So we're right up, you know, end of May, early June. I think his retirement was early June, June 1st. 
So my dad called me into his office and he said, you know, son, you do me a favor. I said, sure, you know, I'll do anything for you, pop. And he said, well, I would never ask you to take on a job or a role you don't feel led to do or called to do. But I will ask you to do one thing for me. And before I tell you this, Austin, I'll tell you, like, I'm just telling you a story and it does have a spiritual component to it. I'm not an overly religious guy. I do have a relationship with Jesus, but if anyone thinks I'm a flake, they can think I'm a flake, but this is the way it went down. So he said, you know, I'm not asking you to take on this job, but I would ask you to go home and pray about it. And if you don't feel led to do it, then I'll never ask you again and I will find the right transition. And so I went home that night. It was one of those kind of verbal out loud deals. I'm not this religious guy, like I said. And I was just kind of having an out loud verbal in my mind with Jesus, right? And I'm sitting in my kitchen. I'm like, come on, God, I'm 31. I'm only 42 going on 43 today. I'm so inadequate. Our business is 70 million. The economy's a wreck. I mean, I'm saying all the reasons why the job is too big for myself, why I'm scared of it and all that stuff. And I guess if I'm being honest, you know, I mean, part of me probably wanted to hear the rebuttal, you know, I wanted him to tell you, oh, you're the guy. But honestly, what I felt like he spoke to my heart and I remember it like it happened this morning. It was like, okay, well, if not you, who? And I remember thinking like, wow, you know, well, anybody but me. But I started to think about there were two gentlemen that were two of our largest producers at the time that both had over two million in revenue books of business, which at the time we only had a couple at that size. Today, I think we have, I don't know, 50 some that are over a million and at least 10 over 2 million. These two gentlemen that I knew wanted to sit in the chair as I'm sitting there that night praying about it. I really believed in my heart that they wanted the job and the title for all the reasons that I didn't. All the reasons that I think they wanted the accolades and the authority and the things that come with it. But I don't think, or I didn't think at the time that they truly understand or understood the sacrifice, the responsibility, the fact that the decisions you make at that time affected 500 families. And I watched my parents build this from zero and I watched them work nights and weekends and do what they could borrowing $10,000 and calling the banker every Friday to say, Oh, here's what I could pay you this week because, you know, I didn't have any bills closed. And I mean, it was just, I saw all that. And so in that night, I didn't have a ton of confidence in myself, but I had less confidence that either one of those gentlemen would be able to take on the role without changing our culture, without changing our model. And the reason I say that is they had a huge book of business. And I felt like when their book of business started to flatten out or shrink because a majority of their day was spent running IOA that they would start to change our model and start to cap our other producers to give themselves overrides or to make sure that they weren't getting out-earned by producers. I really felt like that would be a, an affront to everything my parents were about and what they built. Because, you know, we were built to get the, the greed out of the business, to be the antithesis of greed, to let people have the freedom to out-earn the CEO, as I said. And so that night as I'm sitting there praying about it, I still had very little confidence in myself. I felt totally inadequate and scared, but it frankly scared me more to think about what it would do to turn over what I saw my parents build to folks that I really felt like would change the fundamental things that I believe make us exactly why we're so successful. They're the reasons why we say we're so different in an industry of sameness. And so I went in the next morning and I told my pop, I said, you know, man, I'm scared to death, but it scares me more not to do it. So I'm going to do it. I jump in in June of 08. And in December of 08 was the first year we closed the books that in Iowa's history that we shrunk. We shrunk by about a million dollars in revenue. Now, again, knowing what I know now, Austin, that had everything to do with the macro economy. But at the time, man, I mean, I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, it's all my fault. I didn't even really want this job and I just felt under it. And I'm like, I shouldn't have even taken the responsibility. I got to imagine my partners are thinking, oh, the kid's blowing it up, the young guy and all that. And so I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I felt like, you know, man, I prayed about this and I took the job for the right reasons and we shrunk and I felt like a failure. But I really, in January of that year, I felt like, you know, I planted the flag and said, I want to do this for culture's sake. And so I'm going to continue to do what I believe I was called to do. And if this doesn't get better in the next year or two, maybe it wasn't for me. And I will tell you, man, in January, that was January, in February, I believe it was, one of those $2 million partners that wanted to sit in the chair came to my father and I to let us know that it was his dream to start a competing agency. So he left. A couple of months later, the other $2 million revenue partner had the same conversation with us. So he left. So not only did we shrink by a million dollars in 2008, I just had four plus million dollars run out the door in early 2009. And so now I'm feeling just, I mean, completely under it. The beauty in that story though, and I don't take any credit for this, Austin, is I feel like God showed up is we went on a pace of growth that started literally right around mid-09 that we have never looked back from. I remember we had one of our partners write our first million-dollar revenue account 
one client was that big in commission. A few months later, we had another one of our partners write another international account that was just under a million in revenue. And we brought on a handful of new producers that year that were all over a million in revenue. We expanded into California and grew by millions and millions of dollars that year. The beauty is in the midst of shrinking and staying true to the culture, we ended 2009 with over $6 million, almost, I think it was 5.8 million or so of new revenue, new growth in a very difficult economy. And then the other beauty of that story is one of the gentlemen that left to start his own agency recently did sell to private equity, which is probably what would have happened had he taken over IOA. And then the legacy and the foundation that, that my family built would be no more and the culture would change and the model would change and we'd be rolled up under some big private equity firm. So I'm thankful that I took the leap out there. It was the hardest decision I ever made, but it was one that I appreciate now. And I look back on that year in 08 and 09, some of the best experiences I've ever had. And again, I would never trade it. And I found that out in my life, whether it was that or even cancer, that all of my growth in my life has come from my challenges. It's come from when I failed, when I fell on my face, when I was scared. My success in sports and in business has helped with confidence. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But I can't say I got a ton of growth out of my wins in any other area of confidence where almost all of my growth has come from, Austin, has been my losses, my failures, when I really screwed up, when I really blew it, when I really got hit right in the face. So I'm beginning now as I mature to understand that when you're in the midst of a tough season, when you feel like the world's against you, that, hey, good things will come from that. Because in my whole life, that's where every bit of my growth has come from. You need to find software, but you also have other things to do, things you'd probably rather be doing. Cut to the chase with Captera, the website millions of people use monthly to find software for their teams or businesses. Captera is the free online resource that millions use monthly to find the best software solution for their business. Captera simplifies your software search into just a few steps. First, use their free resources and guides to pinpoint the problem and identify the software features you need. Then you can filter options to find the right software for your industry. There are more than 700 specific categories of software. You can compare categories like CRM, e-commerce, and help desk software. And the best part is that you can compare them side by side and save your favorites to a short list. With free in-depth software guides and tools, plus over 1 million reviews from real users, Captera gives you access to everything you need to know before you buy. So spend less time trying to find software and more time doing what you do best. Visit captera.com millionaire for free today to find the software tools you need for your business. captera.com millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Captera, software selection simplified. Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days, no catch and no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com forward slash MI and enter millionaire interviews and the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com forward slash MI. And for more information about FreshBooks, you can go check out episode 141 where I interviewed the founder, Mike McDermott. So are you saying the Jaguars are eventually going to be good again? I actually do believe they will, yeah. <laughs> Me too. That's why I try to bring up some of the negative stuff as far as the things that you've grown from, like the hardest hurdles you had. And we can get more in detail on that. But I think overall, we all kind of learn more from that than if everything's going well. 100%. Because, yeah, that was quite a transition. Like I said, I thank you for walking us in detail what happened in 2008 and then what actually ended up happening in 2009. 
But if you don't mind, if I ask you some questions about this transition is like, you said you're 31 years old and it sounded like you're going to be the head of 500 people at that point. What was that like? I will tell you that my first step was, you know what? I don't have a degree in finance. And so I went to our CFO who's since been retired, but at the time he was a Wharton grad in finance. I sat down with Wes Govan and I said, Hey, I don't want to be the dumb guy in the room when you're talking about our balance sheet and our P&L and you're talking about financials and I don't want to sit there and go, "Uh uh-huh, and not know what you're saying. And I said, so give me some books to read. I want to sit down every Friday for a couple of hours and I want to pick your brain and I want to know everything you know. And I felt like, honestly, at that time, I would have to white knuckle it because I didn't have a passion for it. My passion was sports. But I'll tell you, and the beauty of this and why I felt like now I feel like I was truly called to this position because the things that I felt like I had to do then to be better in my job became passions of mine. When I started to literally read some of these books that were words I had never even heard of, that I had to Google every third word to understand what they mean, that process though lit a fire within me that caused me to have curiosity about things in finance and business and the stock market and the currency market and the bond market that I had never had an interest in before. And it wasn't being done out of necessity. And my wife will tell you, you know, I've been married, I don't know, 15, 16 years now. We got married, I was a sports dork. And now my Friday nights, if the kids are in bed or Saturday night, you know, I'm up listening to a podcast, I'm reading, listening to financial podcasts, learning about crypto and technology and blockchain. I've just become very curious in areas that has led me to learn about a lot of things that have broadened my perspective and has helped us in business. And it's helped myself become a better leader as I broadened out my knowledge base and things that are pretty far outside of just insurance. I can tell you that I can stand pretty strong on the financial side now. I've learned a ton about technology. I'm a big believer in the the world changing and that we better keep up with it or we'll get disrupted and left behind. And so a lot of those early days when I spent a lot of my time feeling like I had to do this to be good at my job became passions for me. It is now part of my job that I actually enjoy that I would do if it wasn't my job. So you're saying late Friday nights, you're listening to our podcast? My wife will tell you I'm a dork these days. You know, I still have a good glass of wine and hang out. But if we don't have an event or we're not doing something, a lot of my free time, I spend a lot of time with my family. I want to be the best husband and father I can be. But yeah, I honestly do. I spend a lot of my free time reading and listening to financial podcasts and technology and so forth. Yeah. No, our podcast in particular, right? The one that you're on right now? That'll be this Friday. There you go. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm the same way as far as like a lifelong learner. It becomes interesting. Like whenever I'm out and about, I'm always listening to podcasts because I just enjoy learning. So I think a lot of people listening, obviously now can relate because they're listening to this to learn from you. I think that makes a lot of sense. But I had a question as far as I think this will help some other people who might be like producers or brokers, if you will, and then taking over a CEO. What did you end up doing with your book of business? I know you said today you still do a little bit, but did you just hand that over to other brokers? Because again, this is a big transition of you were always going to kill and get your own money kind of within the business. But now you've got to manage all different types of the business instead of just producing for yourself. Yeah, what I did, and I went to my clients when I made the transition and I introduced them to the team that I have around me that were going to be engaged on the day to day. I told them I would no longer be but I also wanted them to know that I was loyal to them, that I would never walk away from them, that if there was ever a major issue, I'd be the first one involved on their behalf. I still get involved occasionally. Not, you know, if there's ever a big claim or a big issue, I get involved, but I still, at least with those customers, at least once a year, want to have a face-to-face and talk life and business and then do some entertaining, whether it's a magic game, a Jaguar game or something of the like to keep those relationships. But obviously my time is dominated with running the business. So a very small portion of my time is there anymore. But I think it's important though, culturally, that I still have a book of business and have customers. So I think sometimes folks transition into leadership and they get so far removed from what the sales folks do every day, they can somehow take it for granted or forget how difficult it can be when your client has an uncovered claim, when your client didn't pay you this month and you got to go collect nature. I think sometimes you get ivory tower folks that don't remember or never had that role to begin with. So one of the things that I think is special about our culture is that I always want to have a business that way that I want whomever replaces me in 20, 25 years to also have a book of business, to be customer facing, to have been there and done that themselves. I think it makes you relevant in a lot of different ways and it makes you better in the role that the CEO job entails. I did like that suggestion and you're saying that you maybe went to meetings and I don't know, would you bring like a younger producer and say, Hey, I'm going in the CEO role. I'll still be there if you need me. Cause this is something that they don't really tell you in textbooks, right? Is there anything you would do differently or that you suggest that anyone would be getting out of a producing position and making that transition? 
I think you got to build it around a good team, which I did that. And then I even recently in this year added a mentee, a 24 year old recent graduate of Georgia Southern as a mentee that I'm helping him. When I do go out on insurance accounts, I bring him with me, but I also involve him in some of the higher level financial conversations at IOA so he can have a broader perspective because one thing that our best producers are broad. They're not just a one-trick pony. They don't just know workers' comp or liability. They actually understand business and finance, and they can have a relevant conversation with a CEO about their business and their margins and about the way they do things and how we can maybe help them be more efficient, which is a completely separate conversation from helping them mitigate risk and buying better insurance policy. And we've really tried to groom and teach our folks to be a consultant the minimum of acceptable behavior is bring somebody a good policy with good terms and conditions at the right price. It's also help them mitigate risk, help them find efficiencies that they don't have today and be their trusted business partner, not their just insurance guy or insurance girl. I mean, that's really not what we set out to be. Yeah, I build it with a good young team around me. I've got a new mentee that I'm training up now that will transition to handle more of my clients as he gets more experience. And so when I visit with them, I bring him with me and I let the client know why he's there. And also know that when I do make the transition, I let the client know if you're not comfortable or if anything changes and you feel less safe or less happy, I need to know about that because it's my goal to have a seamless transition and that this team handles you with the same excellence that you felt like I handled you with. I mean, if anything ever changes, I need you to call me because I value you. I care about you. Your relationship's meaningful to me. So yeah, that's how I've transitioned my book of business. And again, I don't have to spend a lot of time on it anymore, but I still have my fingers in it to some extent. I think that's very important. And so everything's just gone up and up in basically the last 10 plus years, kind of since you've taken over? It has. And especially lately in our industry where our industry is in roll-up mode, private equity has gotten massively involved and rolled up so many of our competitors. So it's like the big get bigger. And there's only three of us left that are truly in the top 100 that are privately held. I think we're in the top 100 when you include private and public companies. I think we're number 23. And there's two other brokers about our size that are also private. But to me, Austin, I think that's a huge advantage for us. And the reason I'll explain that is private equity and Wall Street, they've got massive short-term demands. If they don't hit their 35% EBITDA this quarter, their ass is on the line. They're worried about their jobs. Our model is we're happy with a 10 or 11% margin because we're here for the long haul. And the delta between our 10, 11% and their 35% goes into two buckets, two places. One, we compensate our people better. And two, we build valuable tools for our customers that make IOA more sticky, to make us unfireable, that are over and above the piece of paper, that policy with good terms and conditions. The delta between their EBITDA and ours goes to our people and goes to our clients. What that means is our retention is higher than anyone else. Our organic growth is higher than anyone else. So we don't have to live and die by levering up the balance sheet and acquiring people at very high multiples that the private equity firms are doing, that we can be an attractive place for these people that got bought by private equity, the producers that keep getting their deals changed to come be a part of our family and build something substantial on their own um, and be a part of something bigger than themselves. That's kind of our model is very different. And to me, it's just a tremendous advantage. That's why I say every time I give a talk to anyone regards to IOA that, hey, today's the smallest we'll ever be. And I say it because of the things I just said. How about personally? I know you mentioned briefly something about cancer. Yeah. I mean, this is a weird one that maybe some people wouldn't talk about it, but I did because again, like I learned my toughest things, my hardest issues have become things that I've grown the most from. So I'm a guy who plays basketball every Saturday with a bunch of guys half my age because I need the physical competition one day a week and I do it. And I'm frankly, here I am today. I'm still sore from this past Saturday, but I'm a guy who I don't love to win, but I hate to lose. And so I really go all out every Saturday and I generally come home sore and hurting. And well, this one Saturday, it was the end of 2015. I came home and I was sore than normal in my back and in my groin. When I was in the shower, I had a bunch of pain in my groin area and I was trying to figure out what the heck I did. And I noticed that I had a lump on my testicle. Now, as awkward as that is to talk about, I'm going to do it because I believe maybe this experience might help somebody. You know, obviously freaked out by that. I'm a guy who doesn't go to the doctor unless I feel like I'm dying or I have to. So I knew at that point I had to. And the weird thing is, you know, I go in, they give me a sonogram, a scan, and the guy tells me, yep, I don't know if it's cancer yet, but it's definitely a tumor. It's got to come out. So that was a Friday. Three days later on a Monday morning, I had surgery, got one of them removed. 
He told me at that point, everything looks good. Your blood work was good. Your tumor markers are good. Doesn't look like it's spread anywhere. You should be good to recover. You'll be normal with one left. You're good to go. Your testosterone will be fine. So I'm kind of leaving that surgery thinking, wow, what a whirlwind. I'm going to be okay. I finally get the biopsy done and I find out a few weeks later that it was a non-seminoma cancer. It was very aggressive and that it had in fact spread to my lungs. I freaked out. The weird thing about this in October of 15, a couple of weeks before this happened, I had a perfect physical. I lift weights a couple of days a week. I play basketball. I eat pretty well. I stay in good shape. So completely blindsided me that here I am a couple of weeks after a physical that was perfect, blood work, everything, you know, I had surgery. And now they're telling me I've got to go through chemotherapy. I'm a guy that if I'm sick, I don't even take meds. It just completely freaked me out, scared me, put me into just a whirlwind of unknowns and fear. I decided to share that as I'm the CEO. I didn't want to be going through treatment and losing my hair and looking different and having people making rumors or worried about it. So I decided to get up on the main stage and videotape it and send it to the branches and say to our people, hey, here's what I've just been hit with. Here's what the protocol is. Thankfully, I caught this early enough that it's a 90 plus percent cure rate. I went to the doctor that treated Lance Armstrong in Indiana. So I'm going to be okay. But I wanted to share with you my struggles. I want to share with you the battle. And I also wanted you to know that I trust God's going to be with me and that IOA is going to be fine and that I'm not a guy that's going to get my treatment in the hospital. I want to work when I'm not in the chemo chair because I don't think sitting home feeling sorry for myself is going to make me any better anyway. I'd rather my mind off it and on the business. And I love the people here, so I'm coming to work. The beauty of doing that, Austin, not only I think the authenticity of it all and the fact that I had tears in my eyes probably telling the story, I think caused some real good, strong relationships in the business that I didn't have before that. But another beautiful part of that story, there was three gentlemen in our business that heard that message that found lumps themselves, two of which actually had cancer. One, thankfully, it was just surgery, no chemo, no radiation. The second one, surgery and had to have some radiation. Who the heck wants to talk about nut cancer? I mean, right? That's about the worst thing you want to get up in public and talk about. It's embarrassing. But I thought, wow, there's another example of I wanted to be authentic with my team, but yet this was used for good. There were two other people that found cancer that they otherwise didn't know they had, that had they waited, could have spread, got much worse, and they would have ended up in a much worse position. So that's just another real life example of bad things turning into good. If anyone else has employees, like being willing to I guess share that type of stuff, it seems like maybe it makes more of a bond between you. And especially if you got that many people working for you, imagine a lot of them probably have never even met you. But if you're even putting a video together or something like that, where they can see you, they're like, okay, you're just a regular dude too, even though you might have the CEO title of the company. Bingo. And I'll tell you what, we hired an executive from the UK. He was the CEO of one of the largest brokers in the UK. And the reason he was interested in even talking to us is he watched the video when I shared it with IOA online. And he said to me when he reached out, it's not like that over here. If you're a CEO, you got to have a stiff upper lip. You can't let anyone know. You can't show weakness. You can't be authentic in that way. And he said, that endeared me so much to IOA and the culture that I want to be a part of this place. He is now a big part. He's president of my personal lines and small business division. You know, one of the leaders that I'm most excited about and what he can do for us in the future I mean, it came from that, from a guy across the pond watching me be very vulnerable, which frankly, vulnerable is never a place in my life that I've ever been before. I never felt like there was a challenge that hit me that I couldn't just man up and grind it out and get through it on my own. And I'll tell you, man, when you're sitting in a chemo chair five days a week, five hours a day for nine weeks, I didn't feel like I could will myself to be any better. I didn't feel myself that I was strong enough. And that was the first time in my life I ever felt that. And again, looking back on it, I'm thankful for that experience. Made me who I am. Is that still on your website? On YouTube, if you YouTube Heath Ritt now on cancer, there is one talk I gave at my church. And then I'm sure there's one on our YouTube channel at IOA. And if you'll look at all my speeches, it'll be the one where I've got a bald head. Because I was literally three weeks out of chemo where they had just given me a week prior to our annual meeting, the all clear. So I was able to tell my story and also give everyone that, hey, I'm now clear. I believe it's on our YouTube channel. Yeah, I think if I just Google it, I see the first video come up where you're saying you're bald. So I imagine it's that one, the Celebrate Freedom one. Yep, that's it. Okay. So yeah, I guess anyone can check that out afterwards. I guess you can be open to the people you work with and help them hopefully overcome those things and make it, if they never saw, like you said, that video, maybe those two other guys never even checked themselves to make sure everything's okay. So Bingo. that was, you're saying 2015? That was 2015, finished chemo, March of 2016. I'm now, you know, throughout going on almost four years cancer-free. The chances of reoccurrence are less than a couple of percent. 
Once I get to five years, it's essentially zero. Feel very good about it and physically in great shape again and living my life. And I'm thankful for the experience, as strange as that may sound. Looking back on the growth of your life as I guess kind of as a broker and be able to produce your own revenue growing and then as a CEO now, what was your work life? Were you just working nine to five and being able to produce as much? Or can you tell us how many hours you actually had to put in to become a successful agent, if you will? To be honest with you, my early days, I worked a lot more hours, but I was wildly inefficient and I was also not being authentic. I wanted to be the guy that was the first here and the last to leave because I wanted everyone to see me working. You know, I wanted to look that way and all that. But I realized I was wasting a lot of time. I was inefficient. As I grew and started to live and die by referrals, I realized that there's much better ways to maximize my day that I can come in at 7.30 and leave at 5 or 5.30 and still be home, not every day, but a lot of days for dinner with my family, as long as I'm very intentional about my day and not shooting the breeze too often, not taking hour and a half lunches, not finding myself in the middle of quote unquote busy work, that I was truly being productive in what I was doing. And if what I was doing wasn't productive, I moved to something that was. So I learned how to better maximize my time and have a much better balance in my life by doing the right things and doing the right behaviors and not spinning wheels and also not trying to have the perception that, you know what, man, I'm here at six every day until seven every night, which frankly wasn't authentic and was trying to look a certain part, which wasn't real. And that's not a way to live your life. I think part of growing in sales is finding the best way to maximize every hour that you have. And if you find ways to do so and you become very efficient, you don't have to work 12, 13, 15 hour days. I had those days, I did it. And sometimes I still do, but it is not the norm. I try not to live my life where I'm working 12 plus hour days because there's also diminishing returns when you do. You're less effective when you're burning at both ends like that. When you juggle the amount of balls that I juggle, there's diminishing returns of that many hours of work. You don't handle things as well. But you just juggle one ball now, right? Well said. Yes. Did there. Just call me one pee in the pot. I agree with you, what you're saying. I think when you come in and you're younger and you're sales and you're just putting in those hours, at least you figure it out over time. Hey, I need to be more efficient and not just putting that many hours. But I think at least the dedication in the initial beginning, where maybe some people just think they just have to come in nine to five and aren't figuring that out. Maybe it takes them years and years longer to figure out, hey, I need to be more efficient with my time. And that's obviously what you do today as a CEO. It's try to be as efficient as you can while you're there to try to help motivate and run these businesses. Bingo. Looking back, is there anything else that worth listening or inspire anybody who's going through their business, trying to grow it to something substantial? Hopefully we can all be as big as your business maybe one day, but is there anything life lessons or anything looking back that you want to leave everyone listening with as far as stories? Two things. One, be wildly authentic. I think it's the most attractive thing. I don't have to agree with people that I meet or people that I work with politically, spiritually, or even in business but I'm wildly impressed by people who are real and authentic. And I think it's just a phenomenal attribute that I think some people are scared to be truly authentic. And I think it's attractive, number one. And number two, you know, somebody asked me recently, what's the number one thing you want for your children? And I said, you know, I really want them to be intellectually curious because that's one of the things that has led me down the path to learning about so many different things that have led to success in different areas. And it started with, again, trying to white knuckle learning finance that created a spark within me to learn about Wall Street, that created a spark to me to want to understand our debt and the currencies and the movement in the 10-year treasury and what that does to other rates. And it just led me down the road of then understanding disruption and watching businesses go away. And so I would say just being intellectually curious is critical. I pray and hope my children are that way. And I think for any good, successful young person that wants to build something, be very curious. You'll find yourself learning and understanding things that you somehow fall backwards into, but I promise you it'll bring value in some lunch meeting or some business meeting when you're there to maybe talk about real estate or insurance, but yet you pivot to something you learned this weekend and then you find, well, that CFO or that business owner has a passion too, or is surprised when they look at you and they go, the heck do you know about that? You're an insurance guy. You're a real estate guy, right? It kind of pivots you into, wow, this is a professional consultant. This is somebody that is not just a policy peddler or a guy trying to just look for somebody that he can sell a deal through, you know, or things like that. I would say, you know, authenticity and being wildly intellectually curious are two of the things that I think have helped me in my career as much or more than anything else other than hard work. Yeah. That's kind of wanted to emphasize, like you said, you figure out the efficiency and stuff, but the, the hard work part, 
I think gets overblown sometimes. So I appreciate you even saying that as well. But I'm all with you with the intellectual curiosity. It's like, I remember when the last downturn happened, I really studied economics and tried to understand why did that happen versus everyone saying, this is why this happened. This is why this happened. It's just like being curious can help you in business. And like you were saying, it's not like you were just an insurance broker. People have different sizes of them. They have hobbies and stuff. So even if you're going into a meeting, if you're talking about insurance, they probably also want to talk about other things as well. So I think being intellectually curious is something that I try to implement all the time if I'm learning about business or something other than business, just because I find it interesting. So hopefully other people listening take that into consideration as well. Absolutely. Thank you again, Heath, for coming on and sharing your story. If anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Yeah, they could just shoot me an email. It's Heath, H-E-A-T-H dot Rittenauer, R-I-T-E-N-O-U-R at I-O-A-U-S-A dot com. I'm happy to have anyone reach out. And, and again, I try my best to make time for younger people. And if I can help them in any way, just like those folks that invested in me early in my career, I'm happy to make time to do that. And I think that's one thing as leaders that we should do in, in an effort to pay it forward and help the next generation perpetuate some of the success that we've had. Thank you for helping everyone who was listening today. We appreciate it, Heath. Appreciate you, Austin. Have a good one, bud. If you sell copiers, you probably know all those tricks. Tough game. Yeah, I used to be a salesman. It's a tough racket. I went to a headhunter. I went to work for my old man and my mother. Failed miserably. The old man fired me because business is business. And he said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to get a sales job. He's like, you just got fired from a sales job. You're not very good at this, son. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Oh, Yeah. Watch this. I'll get another sales job and then I'll be successful. And then you will see who's so smart, pops. So I got a sales job and do even worse. But the one thing that I could do, I couldn't sell product, but I could sell myself. So when I went to this headhunter, they gave me a list of like 10 companies to interview with. And the one was the Fortune 109. And the rep on the account said, This is the best job we have in the office. Everybody wants this job. Fortune 109. You're going to have to beat out 100 guys just to get a final interview. It's the best job. You're not going to get it. I said, I probably will get it. You're not going to get it. And I got the job. The best job in the company was the worst job in the world. So I know what you're talking about. That's part of the hook, man. That's part of the, the, the carrot. Fortune 109. You're the best of the best. You're the best and the brightest. I'm on Fortune 109. They made me sign a release for three days of sales school where you won't sex, you won't drink, and you won't leave the property, and you will compete in sales school for three straight days until you're done. Won that. I was the champ of the sales school. They sent me out to my territory, and I quit 38 days later. So I know what you're talking about. Hey, Jim, don't sell yourself short. You're a damn good salesman. Signed 5-Hour Energy, Slingbox, Go To My PC, and every other company that you push. Sam in Rochester. You know what the difference is? I believe in those products. I just didn't believe in a $2,200 tape recorder.